Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and today I've got one for you that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. As I tape today, the PGA Tour season is coming to a close, and you know, I don't necessarily post a ton of golf-related content at Super 70 Sports, but it's a sport that probably ranks second behind only baseball for me in terms of my fandom and the interest that I have in its history. And so it's with great enthusiasm that I welcome to the show today a major champion and one of the most respected voices in the game. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, two-time U.S. Open champion, the United States Ryder Cup captain in 2002, and a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame, Curtis Strange. Curtis, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, thanks, how are you? I'm terrific. Such a pleasure to have you on. I'm a golf guy, and uh, you're the first golfer to make his way onto the uh, Super 70 Sports Podcast, so it's a real thrill. Ah, great. Great. That's uh, that's the highlight of my life. <laughs> I, I feel your sincerity life. coming through the phone, <laughs> loud and clear. Uh, <laughs> let's go back to the beginning. You, you were a very well-decorated amateur player, three-time All-American at Wake Forest, obviously uh, one of the greatest college golf teams ever assembled, 1974 NCAA champion, a Walker Cup player, what was the transition like for you from all of that amateur success to the life of becoming a tour pro? It was by far and away, um, first of all, thanks for having me. I, I look forward to this. You make me laugh. You know, it was the biggest transition. Uh, and it was the hardest transition that uh, that I went through. Uh, and just to you know, when you when you grow up in the game and you you play in junior golf and you're playing with your buddies and you play some amateur golf, and you just kind of gradually get better because of your strength. You're growing, you're learning the game, and everything seems to become so naturally. And you get into amateur golf, and then you go to college and you progress to that level because you're playing with three or four of the best players in the country every day. You can't help but improve. Amateur golf, you continue to improve a little bit, but you're around your buds all day long, and you're just doing what you love. And then you make the transition to decision to turn pro, and it becomes uh, a, a business, a career. All of a sudden, it becomes much more serious. And you know, some of them aren't your buds. It's it's a you know it's a vicious world in any uh, sports, any sporting athletic career, and and uh, it's. I was all of a sudden thrown at the bottom of the totem pole uh, because of talent and, and, and experience and, um, and the new guy on the block. And so you have to learn and work and, and progress and get, you know, their respect and, and feel like you belong. And, and then, but most importantly, you have to improve. The guys are the best in the world. You've come from an amateur uh, environment to the best in the world. And you just have to improve. And you have to put your nose... You know, to the grindstone, hit balls, practice, try to get in competition, uh, uh, try to get in contention, learn and not be scared, learn how to play in front of the TV cameras, all the people. The whole, the whole learning curve is, is it's thrown at you overnight, and it takes some time. 
Well, they always say that baseball is a game of failure, and and I've always thought to myself, well, it's got nothing on golf. Golf is kind of the the ultimate game of failure, and as as you once said, you you win alone and you lose alone. Yeah. And I can imagine that it's a pretty lonely place, indeed, to be between those ropes when things are not going well and you've got so many eyeballs on you, both at the course and and maybe watching on TV as well. You know, it's just a, it's it's you know you can't look at it like that though you. You know, honestly, you know, the, the media, and I've been part of the media for a long time now, and, and we dissect everything. But the actual player doesn't look at it the way we portray it sometimes. It's it's little battles you try to win every day on the golf course or on the baseball field. Um, at least I know how I do every day because my one uh, my one justification as a golfer is my scorecard every day. In a team sport, Think of it like this. You're having a good year and your team sucks, you know? Yeah. Now what are you going to do? Uh, that would be that would be tough for me to handle. Curtis, tell me if, as best you can, just as the minor leagues in baseball are full of 200 hitters that were the best player that anybody in their hometown ever saw, you know, and, and suddenly they're, they're, yeah. they're, you know, people are yelling, you suck and whatever, and there's... Uh, hundreds of people in the town they grew up in say, and he doesn't suck. He's the most dominant athlete that I ever saw in person. I, I kind of imagine that the the tour is certainly like that, and even the, even the satellite tours, for for that matter. What separates playing on the PGA Tour, even just a guy that's out there filling out the field, so to speak, from the local hotshot who is going to go out and shoot a sixty-seven at his at his club this morning while we taped this interview. You know, it's, it's funny you said that. There was, I read a pretty interesting article here uh, on the web a couple of weeks back on the, just that. The club champion at your club who's won three or four years in a row, now he's got his chest way out and he thinks he can really play. Could he turn pro? Could he play in a mini tour event? Could he play on tour? Well, I'm not going to say he couldn't, but you're talking about apples and oranges and you know the apples are rotten. You know, just it, it's it's a different world out there. And and what separates? You know, you make a great analogy a moment ago, and and that everybody comes from. You know, they were the they were the little league all stars. They were the all city team in basketball. You know, they might have made all state in basketball, and all of a sudden they turn pro and try to go to the NBA or golf or baseball, whatever it might be. And let me tell you something. It, Everywhere you go, there's a whole lot, there's, there's people a whole lot better than you are. And those who are willing to learn and, 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 and if they have the ability, number one. But we also see in sports that those who work really hard that don't seem like they have the ability of the next guy, but they seem to make the all-star game every year, mm-hmm. or they seem to, you know, have some triple doubles or win a couple of tournaments. We all, let's go back to golf. It's the grinder. It's the guy that believes in himself. It's the guy that makes the most of the opportunity. And he's got a huge amount of guts and a big heart and a lot of brains. And uh, he doesn't get down. His attitude is better than some. Conversely, there's a couple guys that I know, you know, in every generation that are tremendously talented. I mean, you say, what in the world is going on with these guys? They finish 30th or 50th on the list every year. That's their comfort zone. And 
you know, to, to get better, and they're just not comfortable. They don't want it. They're doing okay, you know. But that's that's a waste of talent and a waste of, uh, you know, God's gift of, of being able to hit a golf ball in a hole. Uh, but we see both kinds, and I'm I'm always rooting for the guy. Put it like this: You take two little league baseball teams, one's from the city, with the fathers or doctors and attorneys, and you know they all got everything they need, and they're gonna that little league team's gonna play the little league team from the country, okay? Mm-hmm. On the outskirts, I'm betting on the country kids every time because they have something to prove, they have a chip on their shoulder, and this is their one way to beat somebody who's better and it's hard to explain why some do and some don't i always try to i I like as a a tv guy i like to try to discuss that but sometimes it just doesn't make sense and uh it goes down to who wants it more than the next guy curtis imagine a parallel universe where you show up at a golf tournament and before the event begins you don't know who any of these people are they're all just player a player b player c could you go out with your years of experience and watch those guys on the range before they played and have a very good idea of who the top players were or is there not always that correlation between the way that a guy looks when he's practicing and the, the way that he takes that game onto the course you know, yes and no. Uh, when I play a pro-am every week, you know, I can get on the first tee, I'd look at their grip, how they handle the club in their hands, you know, how they prepare a little bit. Just take two minutes. I can tell if a guy's played as a kid or not. You know, mm-hmm. has he played a lot of golf, either the youngster or as, whenever he learned the game, versus the other guy that looks like it's, it looks like a pitchfork in his hand. <laughs> and so that's, that's okay. Uh, but some guys will fool you now. Bad grip, bad swing, sometimes a good player because he knows his game and he's the, the heart and soul of, of, of what we're talking about success. Um, Trevino, who would have ever thought that swing, best striker of the ball that I ever saw. Never saw Ben Hogan, but Trevino, who would have given him, you know, invested 10 cents in him when he came out in 68? Um, you know, you got guys like Miller, Barber, quirky swings. How about Jim Furyk? Uh, of, of, sure. of our generation. So, you know, you got guys that don't look good, but they know how to play. And the bottom line is we're not playing swing. We're not trying to have the prettiest swing or in today's time the biggest biceps. It's can you play the game? Do you have the sense to get the ball in the hole, how to play, when to go, when not to go, just understanding the game. And it get, it's like anything else. The more you get to know it, the more you learn about a game, the more complicated it can become. And, uh, and golf is no different than any other sport. What's the life of a tour pro like? We see you guys on TV, and then we see you the next week in the, at the next event in the next town, but what, what's the average week like, for lack of a better way of putting it, for a tour pro from the obligations that you have getting to the next city, uh, be, being prepared for Thursday, and so forth? You know, it, it, it depends on where on that money list you stand. (laughs) And and what I mean by that is the finances. Uh, uh, You know, when Sarah and I were driving the tour back in the late 70s, we we stayed in a hotel that cost us $18 or less a night. We ate dinner for $10 or less combined a night for food. You know, we went from hand to mouth. And so we were driving, and we were having a ball. uh, But it it was what we knew. Uh, and then as you become successful, you know, maybe you start flying first class years later. 
Mondays back in the day for me were travel. And if you had an outing or a corporate responsibility, you got in there late Sunday night, late, late Sunday night. You played golf that Monday, and then Tuesday was travel. And you get in there late Tuesday, try to play nine holes, uh, eat a late dinner, try to practice. Uh, Wednesday was the pro-am. Uh, you play in the morning, you practice in the afternoon, you, you practice in the morning, you play in the afternoon. And then Thursday starts it all over again. Now you go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and you do the same thing the next week and the same thing the next week. And it's just, it's, it's, it's some monotony. You're seeing, you're seeing different cities, different golf courses every week, but it's the same routine. And I think that's what I dealt with when I, when I got into my forties more than anything else. Certainly you're, you're leaving the kids at home and, and Sarah, cause they're home in school. But I think that just the monotony of the same friggin' thing every week, uh, got to me after a while uh practice rounds were the boring most boring thing in the world um but uh, that's what you had to get overcome and these guys that play well into their 40s phil mickelson you know stricker uh whoever davis love in this 50 now i i, I admire him because they've kept the love for the game that uh they had when they, when they were very young but it, it's just the same old same old think about think about other guys in other sports airplanes games rest airplanes games rest it becomes very boring after a while. I think that's what we forget as fans, uh, whether it be of golf or any other sport, is that it's your job, and there's a lot, heck of a lot that you're putting into it that, that we don't see, right? Well, there's a lot of disappointment in there, too. Now, uh, you know, when I say that, there's a lot of, so many times, now, I don't look at us, I don't look at us every week as one winner and 155 losers. I don't look at it like that. But there is a lot of times there's disappointment on that travel Sunday night. You wish you could, you know, just, oh, it's just so disappointing. And, or how you finished or, you know, something, just whatever it might have been. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, you see the, you know, the fans see the guy holding up the check of the trophy every Sunday afternoon. But there's a lot of guys leaving that course that afternoon that are hugely disappointed. And they can't wait to get back the next week to prove themselves worthy again <laughs> or whatever. But uh, it's not quite like there's a lot of guys out there that didn't play the way they would like to play that particular week. Do you think there's anything to the stereotype that some people put forth that goes along the lines of, well, now you can make a pretty nice living finishing 20th every week in this day and age compared to when you were coming up and... You were staying in eighteen dollar hotels. Yeah. Uh, you had to uh, you had to win, or, or you know get, get get as close to winning as you could just to just to feed yourself. You know, it's all relative. Uh, you know, the, the generation before me talked about all the money we were playing for. My first win, <laughs> and it was a lot of money. My first win was nineteen seventy nine, the last term of the year, Pensacola Open, and I won thirty. Six thousand dollars, I think. Now, I was loaded. I felt like, <laughs> but compare that to days. You know, well over a million dollars every week. So, you know, it's all relative. Like I said, you know, the Sam Sneeds and the, and the generation before me and before that thought we were playing for a gazillion dollars, and and we were. You know, we got our share. Eventually, you know, I, I was the first guy to win over a million dollars uh, in a year in '88. Well, that all that did was. It brought up that Arnold was the first guy to win a million dollars in his career. 
Right. So now they're winning a million dollars every week, first place. So, you know, things change, but, uh, uh, you know, the, it's, I don't know. I, I played, yeah, you're playing for a living. You got to pay the bills and kids need new shoes or whatever, but I just enjoy playing the competition and the, seeing how best, how good you could be and, and, and just doing the very best you could every day. That was, that's what drove me. Well, obviously it drove you to the top uh, of the game and back-to-back U.S. Open championships in 88 and 89. And I guess, I suppose in some ways, the curse of winning two U.S. Open championships is uh, a, a million guys like me want to ask you about it until your dying breath. And there's probably only so many times you can recount uh, e- even the, the highlights of your of your career. But is, is there any way that you can explain to an average Joe such as myself what the Sunday afternoon pressure is like on that stage coming down the back nine on Sunday at the U.S. Open, our, our nation's championship, with an opportunity to win? Hmm. First of all, I haven't gotten tired of talking about it yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's clarify that. I may be underestimating uh, uh, the, yeah, the championship well, yeah, there. Some of the others, you know, but, uh, you know, you build up to that your entire life. Uh, and I'm talking about from the early, early days. If you if you all of a sudden were thrown in that situation with no experience, no no recall, uh, you'd be overwhelmed. But I was building to that um, my whole life on tour. That particular year, especially, um, I it was it was anxious. Yes, uh, was I on pins and needles? Yes, uh, was I a pain in the ass to be around? Probably yes. But it's just all part of the competition, and you you are you are wound tighter than you can imagine, and so you you want to go play, and 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 the play was I think the most, you know, um, almost like a comfort zone out there. Now you know you know every shot Sunday afternoon is magnified because it's you're playing for your national championship, but you do the best you can. Um, you're prepared. That's all you can tell yourself. I've, I've been preparing myself my whole life just go get it done and at that point in time as i said a few moments ago it's it's not about anything other than how big your heart is you know who who wants to get it done and nick faldo in that particular case in the playoff in 88 certainly had the same type of mo as i did so you know now now we've got the battle of the wills maybe or or who, who, who can just get it done on sunday afternoon or monday afternoon so it was a thrill yes um uh, you can as a thrill win at any time, but uh, to win the U.S. Open is something that, uh, you know, I certainly dreamt about as a kid. Well, the U.S. Open stands alone with that 18-hole playoff on a Monday uh, in the event of a tie. And, of course, you and Faldo in 88, you you beat him by four shots ultimately, but you want to talk about the, the greatest competitors that the, that the game has seen. I mean, Faldo's right there among them. How did you feel about the 18-hole playoff? Is that, is that a situation on a Sunday where, ideally, you'd like to just turn around and get back out there and r- wrap it up? Or or did you like the 18-hole format? Obviously, it worked out well for you. You know, I I have mixed emotions about that now because we've, been, we've seen that in the Open Championship over in Britain, it's a four-hole cumulative. Uh, the PGA now is, what is the PGA? Cumulative or one hole? 
Anyway, we live our lives in sudden death playoffs on tour. And, of course, the Masters is a, a sudden death. But I sense that the U.S. Open is different. It's our national championship. It should be the hardest test in golf. It hasn't been. Uh, I don't like the way the U.S. Open's been going. Uh, I think they've lost their identity. Uh, they're losing their identity. And, and what, that's, another, that's a story for another day. But uh, I do like an 18-0 playoff. Uh, I think it's the biggest championship, so 18 holes is certainly more fair uh, than four holes, although I, I kind of like four holes to get it over with Sunday night. So remember, remember, when it goes to 18 holes on Monday, it costs the TV network, in this case Fox, an enormous amount of money to stay another day. Right. You have volunteers that have to get back to work. You have fans. What are you going to do with ticket sales? What are you going to do with the club? They've, they've already got players, tea times. Now, that's the least of our problems, but there's a lot of things that have to be moved around quickly. And so, uh, uh, you know, but I, but I do like the 18-hole. I really do. It's, uh, it should be special and harder and more difficult than any other championship. Well, I was actually going to ask you about the direction of the Open, so you kind of gave me an end there, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and ask you now. Yeah. Brooks Kepka, 16 under par this year at Aaron Hills. Obviously, he's a, a terrific young player. Good for him. But you had seven players, I believe, double digits under par for, for that event, which is unheard of uh, for a U.S. Open. You know, growing up uh, in the early 80s and, and, and being a, a rabid golf fan, I'm just wired to believe that if you get to one or two under par, you're, you're if not the winner, uh, you're, you're going to be on the first page of the leaderboard. What, what do you make of the USGA, as, as you said, kind of maybe losing direction a little bit? You know, back in the old day now, when I was playing, we played with the old balls, the old clubs, and we played hard golf courses, Wingfoot, the Country Club, Oakmont, Pebble. So when you got to one or two or three in the par, you know, it, it, it was a fair test, a hard test, and you were playing well. Now the ball goes so much farther, the kids hit so far. So how do they defense it? Well, I wanted to defense it with, with just a hard, fair test, not tricking it up. And I feel like they've They've changed their philosophy in rough, design of the fairways and rough. And then, you know, you can make any golf course unplayable by just putting hole locations on the side of hills. Mm -hmm. I think the greens are at the point of no return on speed uh, because of our knowledge of grasses and ability to grow grass. But to answer your question about this year, we went to an unknown. We, the USGA, went to an unknown in Aaron Hills. Aaron Hills is supposed to be a fast-running, long golf course. It blowing and hot every day. Well, it didn't blow, and it rained every night. So now we have 50-yard-wide fairways um, that played soft and soft greens. They got caught. I, I, I give the USGA an out this year because they went to an unknown, not quite sure how the course was going to play. It played much too wide, and it did have the conditions that they expected. Um, but with that said, that would not have ever been done at Oakmont or Wingfoot or Oak Hill or Oakland Hills or anything like that because you know what you have and you know how it's going to play. But I just don't like, I don't agree with, I'm not going to say I dislike it, I don't agree with the change of philosophy in setting up golf courses. Uh, first of all, they did solve one problem at Aaron Hills or on one question is that the length doesn't make a difference. The thing played over 7,600 every day and 17 under was shot 
So we can't beat these players with length. So now we've got to beat them with accuracy. That's the, that's the number one priority in the game, was to keep it in the fairway and put it on the green. So, um, you know, we have a string of four or five or six U.S. Open venues coming up that are all old-time golf courses, and um, uh, it won't play like Aaron Hills. But I just, I, I just believe that we should keep going to the old great golf courses um, that everybody knows and loves and, and, and knows what they should play like. Well, we've heard the chorus of complaints now for quite a long time that distance is getting out of hand on tour, whether we're talking the equipment, the ball, both. Uh, some golf yeah. courses are being pushed to the brink and, and maybe in some cases past the brink. There's only so far you can lengthen some of these layouts. Uh, what do you think about the possibility of dialing back the ball or putting some type of limitation on this because it's really bombs away out there and it seems to be only increasing as time goes on. Yeah, I, you know, where do you stop the technology, number one? This, this, I guess, much like the long putter or the big-headed drivers or whatever should have been taken care of years ago. And how do you take care of it? I don't know. This is this is the big question. Um, part of the equation that doesn't ever get talked about quite enough is these men are much bigger than we were. They're much stronger. They swing the club much faster. So that's a given. They're better athletes. Look at what they're going to do in the future to Augusta National. They're going to lay three or four holes to an absurd amount. Uh, but that's their defense. Um, I, I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do. I, I still think the farther you hit it, the less fairway you're going to hit. I think you tighten up the fairways and grow more rough. Um, it's as simple as that. Make them play the game. Not bombs will may, but make them play the game. And uh, but and and I think everybody who plays out there understands that. Uh, it's a matter of who sets up golf courses and do they understand that? You know, the two weeks after the U.S. Open this year, they went to uh, where do they play in D.C.? Maybe uh, Avenel or somewhere. Twelve under par one, normal tour golf course. And the next year, next week or the week after that, they went to Hartford and like eight under one. So why did they play so much tougher than Aaron Hills? I don't know, because I wasn't there. But somebody is missing the point on how to set up a golf course. And uh, uh, it, it just it, we go back to the original comment. I really feel like the U.S. Open was what everybody turned on TV every June to see the toughest test for these players. And it hasn't been the last number of years. That was the identity uh, of the tournament, I think, for fans as much as anything. Obviously, the identity of being the national championship is more than enough. But, yeah, that it was going to be the toughest test, that par is always a good score there. But I want par to be shot in a fair manner. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we can, I can go out to your country club wherever you play and make par as a good score by making it a bit unfair. I don't want it to unfair. The U.S. Open always brings out complaints from some players. That's... That's a normal U.S. Open week. But I always. Want always. To, yeah, really. But I want them to do it fairly. I want them to say this is too tough, not unfair. And the complaints in my day were that it is really tough out there. You better put it in the fairway, and you better hit greens, or you're going to make bogeys. That hasn't been said. It's more about being fair or unfair or tricky or, or words like that that I don't like to hear. Curtis, over the course of your playing and broadcasting career, you obviously got a very good look at both Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods. Uh, your first Masters, 
Jack was the winner that year in 75. I believe your last Masters was the year before Tiger's early career-defining statement there uh, in 97. And it looked like for a long time that it was a pretty good bet that Tiger was going to catch Jack's 18 majors. And now it looks like his body has broken down on him. And, you know, it it may be unlikely that he wins any tour events uh, in the future the way that it looks now. I hope that I'm wrong, but his body, you know, there's only so many surgeries uh, on your back that you can take. Is is we're going into the post-Tiger era now. What do you make of his career? 79 victories, 14 major championships, and yet, fairly, fairly or not, it's now tinged with a little bit of disappointment and uh, maybe a few what-ifs a- a- as well. Can I go back, and, and you just made the intro on that, is that my first Masters was in, in 75 when Jack won. I played with him that first round. When people ask, hey, what's the most frightened or most anxious you've ever been on the first tee? That is my answer every time. <laughs> so he hit 18 greens that day, hit 30, had 36 plus and shot 68. And I left the golf course and said, man, i got to find another way to make money. <laughs> I can't do this playing golf. I'm like, are you kidding me? But anyway, uh, he, was, he was unbelievable. And still is at 76 or 7. Um, and then we fast forward to, to Tiger and, you know, did the TV all through his early years with ABC and got to see him up close and personal every day. And he did things with the golf ball that Jack Nicholas never did because of his strength. Now, Jack Nicholas had the same strength as Tiger Woods and same speed, didn't have the same equipment or ball. That was the difference. But playing different golf courses, and you can never compare one generation to another, especially when you're not playing the same court of the football field, same parameters. Uh, Tiger was special, and he was by far and away in his generation the best player. He broke down. What's the what's the fastest way we can, you know, destroy a career of any athlete? You break down, and I don't care who you are. Uh, longevity and injuries you have to avoid. Uh, Willie win another tournament. Uh, you know, we went through Willie win another major. Well, I don't know. And now Willie won another tournament. I like to think, well, I don't want to think, but I think to myself, will he ever play again? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I just, I can't, none of us can answer those questions, but it doesn't look like yes is any answer. I hope he tries to play again, but how do you play well when you're, when you're, when you're broken down so badly now? And you've been away from the game so long. The longer you're away from any game, the harder it is to come back. And you know, from confidence to 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 physical ability, um, it, everything looks bad right now. But he was something special. And you're right. I I thought he would win in the mid 20s in majors. I thought he'd surpass Sam Snead's record of 82 wins on tour, like he was standing still. Uh, it doesn't look like he's going to break either one of those two records in Sam or Jack's. So uh, it's, a, it's, to me, a success story, but it's also a sad story because I, I do think that at, out there in the world, people look at him as somewhat of a disappointment or maybe even a failure, which is so unfair because he talks so much about the 18 majors and Jack, and when you don't accomplish that, in some way, shape, or form, somebody might look at it as your fail, failure. 
We are not. You just didn't. That's the problem with goals. If you don't reach the goals, it doesn't mean you didn't succeed. And much will look at Tiger as just that. Looking back on it now, getting close to as hard as it is to believe, it won't be long until it's been 20 years, that 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach where Tiger won by 15 strokes, is that the greatest feat of tournament golf ever? I've said it ever since then. Greatest 72 holes ever played. Not even close. You can Hogan played really well up at Oakland Hills uh, in the U.S. Open years ago. Uh, Jack Nicklaus lapped the field at the Masters, his first or second win. But these, these are some of the stats that we, we have forgotten. Tiger Woods lapped the field in every major during that two, three-year period. I mean, I've been lapped the field. I'm talking about winning by eight, nine, or ten shots. At one time, he held, and still might, not the U.S. Open scoring record, but he held every major championship scoring record in the four majors. Not by one or two, by many. Uh, he was three times in, in the world ranking, three times better than the number two guy. It was, he was phenomenal. He was phenomenal. And But let's not forget, we started this conversation by com- really comparing Jack and Tiger. Let's not forget how good Jack was. And let's go back, when we have forgotten, let's go back and look at the record, how many times he won, 60-some times, 18 majors. But let's look at, and this is no accomplishment because he finished second or third, but let's look at how many times he finished second or third in major championships. He, he was phenomenal every time he teed it up. And he was by far and away the best player. Over Arnold and over Hogan at the end of his career and over Watson. And, you know, Trevino had his number there for a while. But I just thought, you know, Jack is just – and then they play so well for so long. Jack actually was the greatest player, arguably, of all time in his spare time. So <laughs> – uh, when you look at it like that, but they, you know, let's not compare though. Let's let's appreciate both of them. You're talking about playing with Jack at Augusta in '75, and uh, you know what a what a moment that is. Probably jarring for a young amateur to be in the presence of of the Golden Bear when he was uh, still at his best. What about yeah. the intimidation factor that was attributed to? Tiger so much during his prime. You know, he's the one golfer in my life that people made a big deal out of the fact that just simply by virtue of playing in the same group with him, that a guy was somehow going to crater. How much of that was a media construction and how much of that was the real deal? Oh, it's the real deal. And when I said I played with Jack in the first round of 75, it was, I was playing against the best player, but he was also so intimidating too. Um, you know, visually, you know, he wasn't a big man, but, you know, when somebody doesn't say a lot and looks looks right at you, and Jack was intimidating, and I actually think he liked it, much <laughs> like Tiger did. Sure. Tiger didn't say a whole lot, and when he looked right at you and not say a whole lot, there's, there's, this, there's this second or two that feels like 15 minutes, and it's intimidating to go to the first tee and know that, Whoever he's playing with, they're thinking, I've got to play my very, very best today to even have a chance. That's intimidating, number one. Number two is that when he hits it so much farther than you do, if you were not a big hitter, uh, 
and straighter, you think to yourself, ooh, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> uh, now, it doesn't mean you can't beat him, but you better be damn sharp. And he was intimidating. And then he, he wouldn't make much conversation on the golf course. All of the things he did, he knew what he was doing. And But that's just the way they are. Uh, and that's just uh, intimidation is, is part of the game. Curtis, you're a five-time Ryder Cup player, and of course you were the captain as well in 2002. Almost every player talks about how at, at times the pressure of the Ryder Cup can be almost crippling in a way. What is it about the Ryder Cup that makes it so unique in that sense? That you're playing for so much more than yourself. You're playing for 11 other team members. You're playing for a captain. You're playing for your family and your tour. And more importantly than anything else, you got that flag waving all week long. And you're playing for your country. And you know what? I'm going to say it now, and I don't care. We stood and we sang the national anthem as loud as we could, put our hands over our hearts, and we're proud to represent our country and our flag. And that's all I'll say about that. But it was a very, very emotional time to be able to represent a lot of people other than just yourself. And you felt like if you didn't perform well, you were letting a lot of people down. But the pressure part of it, I never felt like it was like that, that bad. It was pressure, yes, but it was fun. And, see, I loved some of my greatest memories ever were of, of high school golf, college golf, high school basketball, because it was a team. It was the locker room. It was the, the BS that went along with it. And all of a sudden, in, in a very self-absorbed game that we play, we had that team atmosphere, and I loved it. And when you're on the first team with your opponent, go let's go hit a ball. You know, hey. The worst thing that can happen is you hit it in a rough, and I have to go get it after you. So an alternate <laughs> shot. So it wasn't. It takes you out of every and everything out about the Rada Cup takes you out of your normal routine. But it's a fantastic week. I, I want to get to your broadcasting career. You know, one of the things about golf that that makes it special. One of the many things, and sometimes the the near misses cruelly become as memorable, or in some cases more memorable than the triumphs and. One case of that that uh, you were eyewitness to was at Carnoustie uh, in 99 with Jean Vandeveld. There's a lot of people that will not remember that Paul Lowry won that tournament, but everybody remembers Vandeveld's triple uh, at 18 to lose it, which famously at the time you referred to as the stupidest thing that you'd seen on a on a golf course. But you were speaking for, I think, everybody that was watching it. It was surreal. What are your memories of, of of that day and how poor Vandeveld, who seems like a very nice man, seemed to kind of short circuit on the grandest stage? First of all, it was, quote, this is the most stupid thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> okay, in and life. Still stand <laughs> in life. And this is, and this is still, I, you know, I question myself after that, making that comment, uh, how these things work. You know, I'm thinking this. And I hit my talk back to my producer and I said, can I say this? He said, go right now. And I'm sitting there. I normally run those type things through Mike Tarico sitting there because he, he was, he's such a nice person. And my producer says, go. And I went. And it was still to this day um, an accurate statement. When you have a chance to think and then react, not just react, but think and then react. Um, he pulled the wrong club and the wrong decision three or four times in a row. But anyway, you know, as a player – as an athlete, as a competitor, you never want to see anybody fail like that. Root for anybody or not, 
you never want to see that happen to anybody because down deep, we all have our, our near misses, and we all know how deeply they hurt for a long, long time. And uh, I'm sure that hurt him um, for a long, long time. In fact, you know, you still think about it. You learn from those losses, but you can't take them back. And, you know, you're right. Some of my greatest memories are losses. Um, they hurt more than the wins were successful. And so um, um, that was tough to call. But he certainly played well leading up to that. And so we went to the 18th tee. It was Rossberg on the ground, Mike Tirico and I calling the 18th hole. And my producer said in our ear, says, Rossi, Curtis, go. Everybody else, shut up. <laughs> so he pulls the head cover off. And I said, Rossi, looks like he's got a driver. Yeah, I'm not too sure, but that call. You know, you got you got a burn on the right, which in American terms, you've got a ditch on the right and deep focus <laughs> on the left. So, but he got lucky and missed the ditch to the right, missed the burn to the right. So then he takes that at two iron. I said, Rossi, it looks like he's got a long iron. Yeah, I don't agree with that one either. Anyway, my point is, Rossi and I got to, to really dissect every bad decision. And uh, it was just tough to call. And then I, and then I called in the playoff. I just said he didn't have a chance. <laughs> I just, you know, mentally he's done. And uh, which turned out to be mostly correct, but it was thrilling for me because w when you're doing TV, so much of it is is ordinary talk and golf, and you try to do the best you can, simplify simplify it as much as you can, where the viewer can understand a little better. And over years, you learn how to do that, hopefully. But you also have to be ready for that moment, and we're always reminded you have to be ready for the moment, whenever that appears in Vanderbilt on the last hole of that moment and I hopefully hopefully and I think we did a good job I've been brought to tears of uh not joy but the, the the not good kind of tears twice that I can recall in my adult life from sporting events one was in 1992 when Christian Leitner hit the shot that beat the University of Kentucky. Oh I grew up a Kentucky kid, yep. so that was pretty devastating. And the other yep. was in 2009 when Tom Watson lost the, the Open Championship. What are your memories of that week and Tom coming so close to doing something at age 59 that... To this day, looking back on it uh, eight years later, it, it seems unfathomable in some ways that he very nearly got that sixth claret jug. You know, it does, doesn't it? Um, I, but when I was a kid, I, I, I dreamt about the U.S. Open. I also dreamt about hitting a shot like Christian Leitner did. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all did, right, in the driveway? You yeah. know what? Situations like that are just – Hollywood wouldn't accept it, you know? So, anyway, uh, I was calling the 17th hole. You know, all week long, he was hanging around, hanging around. Can he do it on Sunday morning? Can the nurse hang out? Can 59-year-old Tom Watson do it? And then all of a sudden, he played well. It got really, really tough on Sunday. Very fast, very hard, very tricky in a good way. And because of that, he was able to stay around the lead. And then all of a sudden, the old Tom Watson, or the young Tom Watson, I should say, kicked in. The last two or three holes, he played superbly. On my hole, he hit a beautiful drive, the par five. He had a hybrid that went right by the flag to the back fringe. He chipped it down to, to gimme range. Now he's got a one-shot lead. And I, to this day, am disappointed with how I covered 
that hole with something so special that was going to happen. It was bland. I just I wasn't ready. Uh, he went to the 18th. He had a beautiful iron to lay up off the tee. He had a magnificent second shot that hit on the front of the green, and it ran all the way through the green some 50 or 60 feet to really a dead zone. And so now we go to the playoff. And we just can't believe this. If he wins at 59, this is arguably going to be the grandest sporting event ever. I would agree. Greatest accomplishment. Think about it. The greatest accomplishment ever. But I had my doubts because he was 59. The pressure is, I don't care who you are and how many times you won, the pressure was phenomenal. And he just didn't play well. And I'm not saying that was from the pressure. I think it's from the the, the, the pressure of the day wears you down physically. And it just looked like he hit a couple of sloppy shots that only fatigue could cause. Right. And um, so, and that's, that's, that's human nature. So uh, it was a disappointment. And Stuart Sink is not remembered as the Open champion, but, but by a very few, he deservedly won. But it won't be remembered as Tom Watson's loss. And man, oh man, I went to the, I went to the, he and Andy North are best of friends. I went back to the compound right after that. And Andy North is in tears. Uh, there's a few other guys in tears. And uh, it was it was very emotional for some of his close friends. Yeah, I mean, uh, emotional even for me, just as a fan, I, to yeah. to see him so close, so tantalizingly close. And I think that that's that's one of the things about golf that <laughs> makes it great, and and also makes it so frustrating. Yeah, yeah, and it was, and you know what, I I can only imagine. Maybe I can't imagine how he felt that afternoon and that night. Um, it was he accomplished so much, uh, but we but we unfortunately we only talk about that he came close and he didn't win and how much better it would have been if he would have won. But uh, you know, there's no better reality TV than sport live, and um, it was just one of those times it didn't happen. Well, I want to ask you about the state of golf today. We've talked a, a, a lot about the people watching at home and fans and so forth. How, how do you feel about the the so-called armchair rules official, these folks that <laughs> are, are volunteering from the house uh, their services to uh, keep everything uh, on the up and up? Uh, I, I felt so bad for, for, for Lexi Thompson this year lose, losing a major, but I know that opinion is, is, is somewhat split on that in terms of you know what she did wrong and and uh yeah. so forth what were your thoughts on on that particular one because that was obviously very devastating for her the way that it not only what happened but the way that she was notified well you know this has been going on ever since golf has been on well not that long it's been going on when people realize that they can pick up the phone and find a number, now let's, I don't like it, okay? But explain to me in this way. If you say, okay, I'm not going to answer any phone calls during the week, okay? Uh, and you eliminate the TV viewer saying, hey, I might have seen a little something out there. Uh, what about the fan that's out there standing beside the guy in the trees and he thinks the ball moved? on the player. Mm-hmm. It's the same difference. One's only right there. The other guy's watching on TV. They both have a pair of eyes looking at them. And that guy 
standing beside the guy in the woods can walk over to an official and say, hey, I think that Curtis Strange might have, you know, caused his ball to move over in the trees. Same difference. I get that. But I really think for the, for the sake of the game, we need to stop answering the phone. But it won't, won't, it's not going to happen. It will not happen. Uh, if they get word that there's been an infraction, they have to approach the player and see if it was or not to protect the field. It's a complicated issue in that way. Uh, I, I really think that we eliminate the honesty, integrity of the player when we question them like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there are times, and the rules state that if I broke a rule unknowingly, that's a new one. Uh, in Lexi Thompson's case, you ask, you know, she didn't mark the ball back where she took it up from. And, you know, I think probably I give her the benefit of the doubt. She wasn't cheating. She was just careless. Right. And the rules of golf do not have a careless clause. It's the rules of golf. So I think they handled it very well. I think they told her on the spot. They put two shots on her, and, and so be it. It's complicated. Uh, I think that the players just have to police themselves. Uh, you know, the Dustin Johnson situation two years ago at Oakmont was handled poorly uh, from start to finish. And it only puts a black eye on the U.S. Open in that case, uh, which is the rules body of golf, and the U.S. Open and golf itself. So uh, I wish it didn't happen, but, you know, there's a, there, it's a big playing field out there. A lot of things can go wrong, and the rule book is so complicated currently tried to made simpler but the rule book is still so complicated there's a lot of things happening out there that we don't even know about well one of the things that has always made golf unique among sports is you're expected to call penalties on yourself it's the the yeah. gentleman and ladies game uh, where you do that uh, without naming names of course because i know you wouldn't nor would i nor would i uh, expect you to or want you to how many times during your career did you observe someone on tour do something that you didn't think was maybe kosher? <laughs> oh, you know what? It, it, I didn't even look. I, you know, that stuff really bothered me. And, you know, I, I took everybody as a, a very honest person. And there was a time or two that, you might have questioned about where Mike Gaw might have been dropping the ball, where to enter the hazard, that type of thing. But it was always a conversation. Hey, hey, Joe, I think it crossed maybe here. No, I think it crossed here. And you and you work out, you work it out. It's, it's no, it's no questioning his integrity or sportsmanship. It's just that hey, maybe maybe we saw it differently. That's all. And that's the only time it ever came up with me. As far as some of that other stuff, it has come up over the years a couple of times. You know the way I looked at it? If the guy thinks he's going to cheat to beat me, I got him beaten first tape. And that's the way I looked at it. And those things used to be handled in the locker room. Unfortunately, now the press gets a hold of them, and it, and it, and it doesn't show it doesn't show anybody in a good light. But if that stuff happens, handle it behind closed doors in the locker room. Shove him in a locker or something, but don't 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 <laughs> do it in front of the press, which has happened, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, Curtis, there there was a lot of concern, obviously, in teeth gnashing uh, about who would carry the mantle for the tour uh, once Tiger was was gone, and the longer that Tiger yeah. has has not been relevant to the goings on of of the tour, it becomes clear we're probably already in the post Tiger era. Yeah. Uh, yeah, seems to be turning out pretty darn 
performed well so far with names like Spieth and McElroy, Jason Day, DJ, Ricky Fowler, J- Justin Thomas now. How much fun is it for you to watch these guys? You know, I, 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 I laugh at those comments about what are we going to do without Tiger because we were pretty strong before Tiger. And what are we going to do, shut our doors and shut down shop when Tiger doesn't play anymore? Now, granted, and, and, and don't write letters to me about, I understand that his TV ratings really boosted when he played. Yes, the game was growing when he played. Uh, sponsorship was stronger, the whole thing. Uh, because he was the most recognizable, celebrated athlete of all playing our game. I get that. But, you know, viewers on TV have changed coincidentally during the Tiger era that we don't watch anybody but the superstar teams and the superstars when they play now anyway. The casual viewer has other things going on. The the millennials now. And I understand all that. But I got to tell you, golf is in great hands. These kids are so well-spoken. Not that they weren't before. But they're so into their brand now, so they can't afford to make any mistakes. <laughs> right. I screwed up every month, it seemed like. <laughs> you know, I paid my share of PGA Tour fines for, for cussing or getting caught cussing on TV or slamming a club or something. But that was all before TV, four days a week, five hours a day. And social media and tweeting and the whole thing. You know, I tweet now, which is not a good thing. <laughs> no, it's a very good thing. That's how, that's how I hooked no, up with you. That's a very good thing. You know, I have learned one thing. Do not ever tweet after having a cocktail. That's <laughs> you'll get in trouble. Yeah, that's, that's just solid <laughs> life advice right there. Yeah, right, that's right. I, uh, I think, you know, Justin and Rory and Jordan and you know, Ricky and, and, and some, some of the old guard, Phil, hanging around, yeah. to me, is exciting. And, gosh, the whole shooting match of young kids, uh, uh, my gosh. And I'm, I'm only naming the three or four top. Dustin, you know, Brooks Kepka. You know, when I'm, when I'm picking out my fantasy football league, I'm hanging up. I'm picking Brooks Kepka as my linebacker today. You know? <laughs> He's so big. But anyway, they're so gracious and nice and, you know, appreciative and, and knowledgeable. Uh, I, I just think golf's in great hands and, and, uh, and, and good, solid, and, and obviously it is. But, uh, you know, TV ratings aren't the same without Tiger, but we'll be okay. Well, I can't let you get out of here without asking you another 70s-related question. Who, who were your favorite athletes growing up in that era in, in other sports? Who were the guys that you admired? You say when I was growing up as a kid? Sure, yeah. You know, I, I, a couple of guys. Sam Snead, I'm a Virginia boy, and Sam Snead was from Virginia, so he was my he was my number one. My brother and I, I have a twin brother who played the Tour in 81. He and I would always practice, does Sam do it like this? No, then it wasn't any good for us. But Sam Snead was our model and, and my guy and just it's, it's an unbelievable player. And then, of course, my dad was a good club player, and he was an admirer of Arnold Palmer, so Arnold became, you know, a hero of mine and later became a dear friend, and and we lost our dear friend last year. And it was you talk about emotional for a lot of people. It was very emotional for me, and uh, I never thought he'd pass on us. You know, he was, that, he was superhuman to all of us. And then my dad, of course, was a good player and a good swinger, so copied him. But other sports, you know, 
Gosh, you know, you, you watch back in the day, back in the, you know, the dark ages, um, you know, you, you baseball, one baseball game was on every Saturday. You had one football game on Sunday. So you watched, you know, the, the top teams are on TV. The Yankees were on all the time. So I became a Mantle fan. You know, the Orioles were on a lot. They were good. So I watched them. Uh, always, be, always had been a Redskins fan because they were local to Virginia. Mm-hmm. Not real proud of that organization right now to be quite honest with you but yeah still you root for colors don't you yeah and so uh, you know and then i gotta tell you when when uh when cable when turner started the atlanta braves being cabled out throughout the country everybody watched that because you could watch baseball three or four nights a week so we all watched the atlanta braves and so therefore we all became braves fans we all love dale martin exactly so you you evolved with with tv and now with with so much on television, there's so much to watch. You know, you you really have an option, and therefore TV ratings are down. But uh, you know, I grew up a sports guy. You know, at Green Bay was a you know the, the Green Bay teams, the Pittsburgh teams. Uh, how can you not like all those guys? There's nobody that was unlikable. And then get to know some of the guys through golf over the years, and it's been really a joy and and and, and a kind of a fantasy to meet some of those guys that were heroes. Um, uh, of yours growing up, so uh, we grew, we grew up like any other kids. You know, you were out in the yard or at the end of the street every afternoon playing the sport that was in in season at the time. He's a two-time U.S. Open winner, no doubt, one of the keenest minds in the game of golf. Curtis, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a real pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, uh, once again, uh, uh, you make me laugh. <laughs> Some of the stuff on the tweets, I enjoy it. Man, that was a lot of fun. I've always had a ton of respect for the guy, and after having him on the show and having that conversation with him, my respect has only increased. A terrific guy, one of the truly great players of my formative years as a fan of golf. Big thanks to Curtis for coming on the show today. My guest next time is a three-time Major League All-Star who wrapped out over 2,000 hits over a Major League career that spanned 16 years. He's a member of the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame and one of the great shortstops of my youth. Gary Templeton will join me for a wide-ranging baseball conversation that I think you're going to be sure to enjoy. So until I'm back with Gary Templeton, this is Ricky Cobb saying to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.